Our guest today writes, from 2001 to 2006, passenger deaths aboard major U.S. airlines hit a total of zero. During that same time frame, American hospitals killed an estimated 250,000 to upwards of 500,000 patients with medical mistakes. That's the equivalent of crashing 1,400 fully loaded 747s with no survivors. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is John Nance. John is a decorated military pilot, attorney, global airline safety expert, and one of the founding members of the National Patient Safety Foundation. His latest book, Why Hospitals Should Fly, The Ultimate Flight Plan to Patient Safety and Quality Care, gives us plenty of food for thought. Welcome to ReachMD, John. Thank you. It's very good to be here. John, I have to say, when I first saw your book, I was really puzzled by the title, uh, Why Hospitals Should Fly. Why do you connect improving hospital care to the aviation industry? Well, I'm very quick to point out that it isn't that aviation knows how to practice medicine, because we certainly don't. But what we have done is bloody ourselves so badly in decades prior to this that we had to learn some lessons about human nature, human communication, and some of the things that it turns out are the very same problems that we have at the heart of almost every, if not every single accident and incident in healthcare, especially those we consider patient safety disasters. And it's amazing to me, as you outline in the book, how aviation has risen to the challenge and really come up with some very elegant uh, solutions to some of the problems. Well, one of the reasons is, of course, that we can control our environment to a greater extent than the average hospital with people not working for the hospital and being in kind of a farmer's market type of structure. By the same token, because this is one of the complaints or criticisms that I have gotten for 20 years of bringing these lessons across is that, well, you know, in a cockpit, you can order people to do things the same way. In a hospital, you have to maybe cajole or ask or beg or plead, or in some cases, you can't make them do things the way that they should if they were going to be unified. Well, that flies in the face of a reality here, which is that we have to change the way we practice medicine, period. And if that means consensus in one form or another, then we've got to get it. And it's not as simple, agreed, as aviation, but the lessons are still human lessons and they are still just as profound. Now, you mentioned that there are three big error-producing tendencies across all professionals, be they physicians or pilots. What are they? This comes from about 20 years of my crunching everything I could possibly get and reading everything I could get, and it really came down to the same thing in every aviation accident, every NASA accident, every medical accident or incident, it was the same thing. There was either one or a combination of these things. Bad communication, somebody thought something was said and it wasn't said the same way or was misunderstood or many of the different ways in which we garbled communication. Perception, we thought we saw something, but it wasn't what we thought we saw, and we acted on that misperception. Or assumption, which really does drive a tremendous number of the medical errors. Gee, I assumed that handoff was good. I assumed it was the right hand and not the left that needed the operation. On and on and on. In some cases, we have all three of these tied up over and over and over again in the analysis in a, a post-accident environment of what happened in the operating room. So when, when you try to fix a broken system, these three things seem so personal and idiosyncratic in a way that every situation might be so different. How do you fix it? Ah, that is the key to the whole thing. You see, every human system, and medicine is kind of the poster boy for this, and in my uh, estimation, every human system has been making the same mistake, really, for about the last 150 years of industrialization. We have tried to dehumanize a human system. But in the final analysis, Every human system depends on, obviously, human beings. And human beings, while we try to be perfect, 
cannot achieve that, and yet we are taught to be perfect. Every physician, every nurse is taught that you do not have the latitude to be anything less than perfect, and we're going to chastise you or run you out of the profession if you can't achieve that perfection. But that is an incredible fraud. So we have built all our structures, and we had this in aviation as well up until the late 70s and early 80s, based on the expectation of human perfection, and we weren't making allowances for absorbing human error. So this is why assumption and perception and communication are so personal, because really what it gets down to is the errors that produce the accidents, the incidents, the ones that kill patients or cause lifelong alterations come from personal error of people who are trying to be perfect instead of in teams. How do you encourage then the culture that accepts mistakes and learns from them? You basically have to take that culture and show them a mirror and show them the things that they've known all along deep in their heart have been true, which is that most of the problems that they have seen, they know very well individually. They can't stop. They can worry about them. They can work really hard to stay ahead of them. But eventually, a doctor is going to make a mistake. Hopefully, it won't hurt anybody. Same thing for a nurse. So when the culture looks at this as a culture and sees an unacceptable level of patient impact, in other words, basically that medicine is a very high-risk and low-reliability industry, and yet here's another human industry over here in aviation and nuclear power generation, and to a certain extent, some aspects of military, like an aircraft carrier, that were originally high-risk but are now high-reliability. There are lessons to be learned in how to make the transition from one status to the other, and that's where you simply can't look at it and say, well, this is why we have insurance. The public expects better, and I don't know of any doctor, any nurse, any administrator who doesn't want to change this system for the better. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is author and attorney John Nance. We are discussing how we can improve patient safety. John, tell us your ideas about practice autonomy and how that may not be a good thing for patient safety. Well, let's do it by analogy. As an airline pilot, and I flew as an airline captain for many years, if I told you before the flight that, well, we have checklists up there, but I'm a captain and I get to make my own decisions, so I've decided I don't use checklists. And, oh, by the way, I'm going to sit in the right seat, not the left. And I do this because I'm a really good captain and I know better than the average. Would you fly with me? <laughs> Heck no. I don't no. think you would. But that's, that's what we do in every operating room in this country that hasn't reformed. We give physicians who are, by and large, excellent people and good intellects, we give them the capability of reinventing the wheel every time. And this is really an absurd way to practice. That doesn't mean that we go with cookbook medicine and everything is reduced to an absolute routine. We need a surgeon in particular, we need a doctor in any sort of a, a, a role to use their cognitive abilities. But in order to do that, we need to remove those elements that are there all the time and can be done the same way every time and indeed need to be because we know from experience that if they're not, we have a propensity for making mistakes. Is that where things like checklists do come in then? Absolutely. Not only checklists, but procedures. For instance, a timeout at the beginning of a surgical procedure. When first introduced in many places, the response of the surgeons is, don't tell me what to do. Don't give me that. You just do the paperwork. You do that timeout stuff. I'm not going to participate. And yet we know, just like we learned in aviation, that every provision in a checklist, somebody had to die to get that line in there. We have a really bloody history in surgical practice of knowing that certain things need to be done before a procedure, and one of them is to check the paperwork, one of them is to check the meds, one of them is to check if it's a uh, left or a right site surgery, that we've got the right site, and to check to make sure we've got the right patient on the table. I mean, these are bedrock basics, but they fall under the area of assumption, 
and they become a matter of twisted pride in the mind of the practitioner that, you know, if I do this by rote, somehow I'm going to be diminished as a practitioner. Those are the things that we have to change. And thousands, if not tens of thousands of practitioners know that that is really an insurance policy, and it's a very good one, that if they faithfully go through those timeouts, just to give you one example, they will, in fact, know that they've got the right patient on the table. They are operating on the correct side, etc. So nothing happens until that checklist is completed. In the ideal situation, now there are too many hospitals who have said to their practitioners, we'd like you guys and gals to do it this way, but they haven't yet understood that they have to have the backbone to say it will be done this way. Now, of course, for every doctor, I'm not talking about this being forced from the top down, especially a non-physician administrator. I'm talking about a situation, and I outlined this in the book, of getting the practitioners together and saying, guys and gals, you're going to make a decision on how we're going to do this. You're going to get together, you're going to look at best practices, and then you're going to solidify after wrangling this back and forth how we're going to do it. But once you've made that decision, you as the practitioners, it will be done that way to a man, and there will be no variation. John, I had the pleasure to interview a while back the author of a book called Why Nurses Eat Their Young and Each Other, uh, Kathleen Bartholomew. Yes. How do physician-nurse relationships affect patient safety? The very key to catching errors before they become dangerous depends on teamwork, not just a strong leader and good followers, but collegial teamwork in which people have respect for and care about each other in the team. That depends on not only communication, but it depends on a level of reaction and interaction that simply has not been there traditionally in medical practice. Now, most doctors have no intention of looking at a nurse as, as some sub-creature or treating her badly or him badly. Most doctors do not just consider nurses are there. They were taught in medical school that nurses are extremely important. But in practice, what they have seen is something entirely different. So in too many cases, their attitude is one of such detachment that they don't realize that many times a comment or, for instance, an action not taken, such as learning the name of a nurse they've worked with five or ten years, can be a very important contributor to a lack of communication. Because if somebody does not feel that they're close enough to or have a license to speak to a physician, especially a more senior physician, they're not going to at critical times. And on top of that, if you've got a situation where, for instance, a very tired and sleepy doc at 3 a.m. in the morning has chewed out uh, a nurse for making what was really an injudicious call, that nurse, even when something really is going wrong, is highly unlikely to call that doctor again. And the patient is the one who's going to pay the price. Let's move on to bylaws, both corporate, hospital, and medical staff. Why does aligning the bylaws make sense for patient safety? The biggest problem that I see in dealing with boards, and I speak to and and consult with boards uh, as well as physicians all over the country, is that when you are trying to get a unified approach to patient safety and to quality within your hospital, you will occasionally, at the very beginning of these uh, processes, run into a situation where you have one or two or three physicians. I mean, usually it's a very small number who are dead set against change and will try to wreck any cultural change you put into effect. They have to be dealt with and dealt with immediately. But if the bylaws are not aligned, the problem is that even your head of your medical department, in other words, the the chief doctor, if you will, is not going to be able to recommend to the board that a particular individual have his privileges removed. It's going to be a two-stage affair. So one of the things that I request is that these things be aligned between a board's aligning of the corporate bylaws and that of the medical staff, and that the medical group become completely involved in this so that they are happy with the way it's written. And this means that if nothing else works, the CEO 
should have the right, with the board's approval, to terminate the privileges of a physician who simply refuses to change and is running off nurses at a high rate or hurting patients or doing something else that is deleterious to the processes of change that we have to have into effect. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us today, John. Thank you very much. We've been chatting with John Nance about how to improve patient safety, as written in his book, Why Hospitals Should Fly, The Ultimate Flight Plan to Patient Safety and Quality Care. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. If you register with the promo code RADIO, you can receive six months free streaming for your home or office. If you have comments or questions, give us a call at 888-MD-XM157. Thank you for listening.